Sabbath to all of you. Welcome to all our, all our guests. I have to wipe away a few tears. It's just a beautiful song, and uh, we'll be hearing a little more about that in the sermon later on. So Shabbat Shalom to all of you. I hope you uh, saw the full moon. How many of you saw the full moon last night? So, oh, too bad. Some of you missed out. Only about 70% of you saw it. But obviously what it means is that we are nearing the festival season. So tonight at uh, sunset will be the 15th month, uh, 15th day of the 6th month. And actually uh, the full moon was occurred just nine minutes ago uh, here in Charlotte and, of course, in Israel. Right now it's 9.30, it was 9.35 p.m., so we'll be looking forward to the coming festivals. Uh, just one month from now begins the Feast of Tabernacles on the 15th day of the seventh month. And, of course, it will be a full moon then as well. It will be the lunar eclipse, uh, the fourth of the tetrad. It will be a blood-red moon, perhaps, at least a certain coloration of it. Uh, so you might want to see that after the opening services that night, depending where you are. Apparently, the visibility of this particular eclipse is going to be widespread across the United States. Feast of Trumpets, of course, just two weeks from tomorrow night. We'll be looking forward to that. My wife and I will be going up to Kansas City. Uh, Dr. Meredith will be here. So God's festivals and Holy Day reveal God's plan in a very comprehensive way, so much more than what we would have understood had we not been keeping the annual festivals. But I want to ask you today where you will be, or where will you be, 10 years, 15 years, or 20 years from now? Will you be in Charlotte, North Carolina? Or will our brethren in Australia, France, or Argentina still be in those countries? Or will they be someplace else? You might remember the comments about men and women of faith. We'll turn to Hebrews, the 11th chapter. Hebrews 11. A very interesting comment about those individuals. Hebrews 11, verse 13. These all died in faith. And we've had many of our brethren that died recently. And over the past few years, they died in the faith. And no greater comment or commendation could be made about them and that they died in the faith. But having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced these promises. Hebrews 11, verse 13. Now, have you embraced the promises and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth? Have you considered yourself a stranger or a pilgrim? When we focus on the Feast of Tabernacles, we reinforce the lesson that we are strangers and pilgrims as we stay and live in temporary dwellings. Those who have grown up in military families uh, have moved about quite a bit in uh, their lifetime. I did an analysis of where I lived over the years, and uh, as a single person I lived in 12 different places. As a married person, my wife and I have lived in 25 different places in the 51 years that we've been married. So we've moved about quite a bit. <coughs> we feel like we may have been strangers and pilgrims. However, uh, as of November 6, 2015, we will set a new record of having lived in one house continuously 
for more than 12 years and eight months. That will break our record from our home in Pasadena, California. So we're very thankful to have lived here for that long in Charlotte, North Carolina. But as human beings, we have a temporary life. You'll turn to John, the 14th chapter, John 14. But as we just read here at Hebrews 11 and verse 13, we're strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Where will we live in the future? Where will we be living 15 or 20 years from now? We all look forward to the kingdom and we look forward to our marriage to the Lamb, our marriage to Jesus Christ. And if we're married to Christ, we will be where He is. We will be where He lives. John 14, verse 1. And Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. So Christ was telling His disciples they were going to be with Him. And He is preparing a place for them. He's preparing a place for us. The word mansion is not a correct translation. Uh, one of the uh, commentaries explains, quote, Mansion is an unfortunate mistranslation sparked by the Latin Vulgate, rendering mansiones. And that's from the message of John by Bruce Milne. But the other translations have it correctly. And the NIV, as my father's house, has many rooms. The NRSV, in my father's house, are many dwelling places. The voice translation, which I've is new to me, but if you go on uh, Bible Gateway, you can uh, put on one scripture, uh, John 14, verse 2, for example, and it will list about 20 or 30 different translations for that one verse. A very, very helpful Bible study tool if you're not familiar with that. But the voice translation says, My Father's house is designed to accommodate all of you. And then Darby translation, in my Father's house are many abodes. Well, what is the Father's house? I won't turn there, but John 2, verse 15, when Jesus had made a whip of cords, He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and poured out the changers' money. And He said to them, I take these things away. Do not make my Father's house a house of merchandise. He was referring to the temple. Now, did Solomon's temple have many rooms or dwelling places? And will the future Ezekiel temple have many rooms? And what did those rooms signify? If you'll turn to Ezekiel, the 41st chapter, uh, you'll get an idea of how the temple was configured and the architecture of the temple. Actually, it Chapters 40 through 44 uh, give more of the description of the temple. Let's take a look at Ezekiel 41 here and uh, verse 6. 40, Ezekiel 41. You read through the uh, amazing design of the temple. Of course, this is uh, God's design. He's the architect of the Ezekiel temple. 
Ezekiel 41 and verse 6. The side chambers were in three stories. This is along the side chambers of the temple. One above the other, 30 chambers on each story. They rested on ledges which were for the side chambers all around that they might be supported but not fastened to the wall of the temple. Mr. Leroy Neff uh, did a master's thesis for Ambassador College uh, called God's Temple in Prophecy. And he did quite a, an extensive study on uh, this particular subject and found out that actually this is a mistranslation. About 30, it actually should be 33 is the number of rooms. Uh, Mr. Neff writes, the side chambers were rooms for various offices of the priesthood. In the temple, each succeeding story is larger than the one beneath. God was the designer of this temple, and he does not use the same standards that man uses. So Mr. Leroy Neff, some of you know, he was a faithful evangelist in the Worldwide Church of God. He was treasurer of the church for some time. Uh, my wife and I were able to visit him uh, January, well, let's see, no, when we visited him in March 28, 2013. We were on our way to Houston for the Days of Unleavened Bread and stopped by his home. Uh, he died at age 90 on, uh, let's see, I think it was uh, January 28, uh, 2014, at the age of 90. In fact, uh, 47 years ago, my wife and Mr. Neff and it was um, uh, Ruth Myrick Walter performed a music trio at the dedication of the Fine Arts Hall in the Loma de Armstrong Academic Center. On that same trip, we stopped by and visited Dan and Nancy Hall. Uh, she died later that June of 2013. But Mr. Neff was very faithful, and in his thesis, a master's thesis, he quotes uh, from the Jewish Publication Society translation that it's 30 and 3 times rather than 30 rooms. So on each floor, there were 33 rooms, or a total of 99 rooms. And uh, if you come by my office, you can see the architectural drawings. Uh, there were seven rooms on the west side, and then on each of the other side uh, were 16, is it? Uh, rooms on each, whatever it makes, uh, 33. The Holy Bible translated by George Lamsa, and the side rooms were one over another, 33 in order. <clears throat> so Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms, as Mr. Neff said in his uh, thesis. Uh, it means the so-called little chambers are not so little afterwards. You might turn back there to First Kings, uh, the sixth chapter. 1 Kings, the sixth chapter. In fact, when we were on our way to Brazelton last Sabbath, uh, we stopped by, uh, well, my wife was reading to me from 1 Kings 6. And uh, again, it was describing uh, the uh, temple and the side chambers. 1 Kings, the sixth chapter. 1 Kings 6. I won't uh, discuss verse 1. I've done that before, but it's a, uh, you might want to mark that in your Bible. If you have not, it is a key scripture for biblical chronology. That's another subject. But here in uh, verse 6, talking about the chambers 
as they go up each story. The lowest chamber was five cubits wide, the middle chamber was six cubits wide, and the third was seven cubits wide. So as the stories went higher, the rooms got larger. And Mr. Neff writes in his discussion of the cubit length, he states, it means the so-called little side chambers are not so little after all. These offices are about ten feet from floor to ceiling. So they are symbolic of our future position as the priest had those offices in the side of the temple, Solomon's temple, and of course in the future Ezekiel temple was described in Ezekiel 40 through 44. So the temple, while we're here in 1 Kings 6, just take a look at verse 20. Uh, this was Solomon's temple. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high. He overlaid it with pure gold and overlaid the altar of cedar. I might just mention in passing that uh, Mr. Deff did a quite a discussion of the cubit length. Uh, one of the standard lengths was a foot and a half, but I believe the cubit length for the temple was about 20 inches uh, long. But nonetheless, what did Solomon do with the inner sanctuary? That's the Holy of Holies. It was a cubic, uh, cube-shaped. He overlaid it with gold. He stretched gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary, overlaid it with gold. Verse 22, the whole temple he overlaid with gold. Until he had finished all the temple, also he overlaid with gold the entire altar that was by the inner sanctuary. So, in my Father's house, Jesus said, are many rooms. Jesus is preparing a place for us in those side chambers of the temple were symbolic of the positions that God is preparing for us in, as kings and priests in God's coming kingdom. I asked, where will we live in the future? If you're married to the Lamb, if you're married to Jesus Christ, you'll be with Him. And where will He be? After the wedding, He returns the, to the earth with the saints. He first comes for the saints at the uh, first resurrection, 1 Corinthians the 15th chapter, verse 52, at the last trump, which is, of course, the first general resurrection. Then we go to the wedding on the sea of glass before God's throne for the nine days during the Feast of Trumpets to the Day of Atonement, and then come back with him for the Battle of Armageddon, and then we remain where he will be. Where will he be? Let's turn to Zechariah the 8th chapter for the answer. Of course, you're already familiar with Zechariah 14, where it says, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. So, obviously, he's going to come back to earth. But Zechariah the 8th chapter gives us this plain statement. Zechariah 8. And verse 3, Thus says the Eternal, I will return to Zion and dwell, where? In the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Eternal of hosts, the holy mountain. Just so inspiring. I've been to Jerusalem four times, and I just can't help but get a little emotional over it. I know some 
people when I asked back in Pasadena at the Bible study, we had 700. And I just come back from Jerusalem and I, I said, how many of you would like to live in Jerusalem? I was so enthusiastic about it. The 700 in the auditorium and about eight people raised their hands. They were not so enthusiastic about living in today's Jerusalem. But I'm enthusiastic about it, and Jesus Christ is enthusiastic about it, and I hope you will be enthusiastic about it. We have a little glimpse of the millennium here as well. In verse 4, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the seats, streets of Jerusalem, each one with a staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls, playing in its streets. So we have a beautiful picture of what will happen in the future. And what will we be doing, of course, during that particular time? We'll have details of that during the Feast of Tabernacles, but we'll be teaching. I'll just refer you to Isaiah 30, verse 20. Yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. We will be teaching the way of life that we're learning now. A way of peace, a way of love, a way of joy, a way of service, as we heard in the sermonette. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left, Jerusalem is going to be the world capital during that time. Let's turn to Micah, the fourth chapter. So it will be a time of peace. Jesus Christ is going to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Micah, the fourth chapter. We'll hear more, of course, in the Feast of Tabernacles. But Micah 4, verse 1. Now will come in the past, in the latter days, that the mountain of the Eternal's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. Again, mountain can be symbolic of government as well. And shall be exalted above the hills, the smaller governments. And people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of the eternal, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the eternal from Jerusalem. As we'll see later, there will be a time of transition. Once Christ comes back to this earth, everyone is not automatically converted. There's a period of time, a period of re-education. And people will go up to Jerusalem to learn that way. Verse 3, He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks, Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Well, that's the time we look forward to. We pray for God's kingdom to come. We look forward to that millennial rule, and we will be living where? If you are a Philadelphian, or if you are married to Christ, you will be where He is. You will live in that glorious capital... The capital of the world is a part of God's royal family. Now, how important was Jerusalem to Jesus himself? Turn to Hebrews, the seventh chapter. Be careful not to knock this microphone here. Hebrews, the seventh chapter. 
starting with verse 1. Well, actually, in the previous verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 20, refers to the high priest. Even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek meaning king of righteousness. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem. Historically, he was king of Salem. What does Jerusalem simply mean? City of Salem or city of peace. And he was king of Jerusalem. When? The 20th century B.C., about the time of Abraham. So Jerusalem existed way back when, and Abraham met the king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem. King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. And, of course, he was without beginning and without end. And some commentaries say, well, they, they lost his genealogy. No, that is not, not a correct interpretation. But here, Jesus had a personal interest in Jerusalem even 2,000 years before he came in the flesh as the Messiah. Turn to Luke, the 19th chapter, just to see again how Jesus had a personal and emotional attachment to Jerusalem. Luke, the 19th chapter, verse 47, 48. He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, scribes, and leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. So he taught in Jerusalem daily, it says. And of course we have the, uh, they call it the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, uh, very inspiring uh, through part here of the chapter 19. When the crowds, the Pharisees, verse 39, called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, as they were praising him as he came down from the Mount of Olives on a donkey. But he answered, verse 40, and said, I tell you that if these should keep silence, the stones would immediately cry out. Here was the king of Salem. Here's the creator. Here's the Messiah. Here is the king of Jerusalem, the king of kings. And if no one praised him, the stones would have cried out. He was the creator of stones. What an awesome day and time that would have been. But notice his emotion. Verse 41, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known even you especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you, when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And Jesus, remember, rebuked the Pharisees because they didn't know the signs of the times. They could discern the signs of the weather. But they did not discern the signs that the king of Jerusalem was there, the Messiah. 
It said he wept over Jerusalem. Verse 41. I turn back to uh, Luke, uh, the 13th chapter. Luke, uh, the 13th chapter. And again, another emotional expression. Luke 13. Luke 13 and verse 35. I'm sorry, I'm starting, uh, sorry, verse 33. Nevertheless, he said, uh, as he says, Herod wants to kill you. Well, go tell him that fox, verse 32. Behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Verse 34. What was Christ feeling? Oh, Jerusalem! Jerusalem! The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I would gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until a time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He had deep feeling for Jerusalem. He lamented over Jerusalem. He was king of Salem. It was very important to him then, important to him now, and important to him in the future. The Jews of Jesus' day should have known that he was the Messiah, and some of them did, and are going to be held accountable for that. How should they have known? They should have known, and many of them did, from the Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. Let's turn back there and take a look at that briefly. Daniel, the ninth chapter, Daniel 9. Here Gabriel appeared to Daniel, verse 21 and verse 22. O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the division. And then we have a subhead here, prophecy of the 70 weeks. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. And then it gives several purposes of that seventy weeks prophecy. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Though Christ made reconciliation for iniquity, he shed his blood so that you and I could be forgiven and cleansed of our sins to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, some think that was to anoint Christ. Others' translations have it to anoint the most holy place. In other words, the temple, the Ezekiel temple, once he comes back, is another understanding of that particular verse. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, until Messiah the Prince, so they knew the Messiah was going to come, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, so 
that's 69 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. So they should have known when the Messiah would have appeared. How would they have known? Well, there was a decree that went forth to restore and build Jerusalem. And that's uh, Ezekiel, uh, sorry, Ezra, the seventh chapter. I won't take the time to go into that now, but you can look to the decree of Artaxerxes. And historians place that decree at 457 B.C. So now you go forth 69 prophetic weeks. So that's 7 times 69, which ends up being 483 years. The Jews of Jesus' day should have known that from 457 B.C., 483 years later, the Messiah was going to begin his ministry. So you subtract, go ahead, 483, subtract 457 B.C. from 483, and what do you have? 26 A.D. However, since there's no year zero, you need to add one year and the Messiah then would appear for his ministry in 27 A.D. Halley's Bible Handbook has the 26 A.D., but he made the error of not calculating for the lack of a year zero, because you're going from B.C. to A.D. Now, if you're having, uh, you want to review that, all you have to do is see my telecast, The Second Coming, in which I did that on a whiteboard on the telecast. That aired December 14th, 2014. It is uh, program number 487. Uh, you can access it on tomorrowsworld.org. Any of our telecasts uh, you can access on tomorrowsworld.org. So just put in the search column, a uh, search field at the upper right hand of the home page, quote, the second coming, end of quote, and you can find the telecast and work through it, and you can see my putting those numbers on a whiteboard. So if you haven't written those numbers down accurately, you can do it uh, once again by seeing that telecast. So Jesus was to appear in 27 A.D., and he was going to be cut off. He was cut off, however, after three and a half years. He died in 31 A.D., and I forget the date, I think it's April 25th, 31 A.D., when there was a lunar eclipse. It was a night to be much observed when Jesus was put into the tomb. It was a partial eclipse with a red blood moon partially. And so when Peter spoke later on in Pentecost and said, you know, what, what's happening here? What, it's a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy about the sun be turning dark and the moon be turning to blood. Those in the audience of Peter on Pentecost had seen the supernatural darkness when Jesus was on the cross and saw the lunar eclipse that night. And so they had a connection to what Peter was saying on Pentecost. But Jesus' ministry did not fulfill the 70th week. He fulfilled only half of the 70th week. And so when will Jesus complete that 70th week? 
when he returns, he is going to be making a covenant, a new covenant, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You might hold your place in Daniel 9 and turn back to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 and verse 33. Well, let's go 31. 31, 31, easy to remember. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Eternal, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Eternal. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Eternal. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We are pioneers of the new covenant. We have a sermon by that title, which you can go on cogl.org or lcg.org and uh, reference that particular sermon, Pioneers of the New Covenant. God is working with us. He's writing His laws on our hearts and on our minds now. But He's going to make that covenant with the nations, and they're going to be combined into one nation under King David, but he's making a covenant. When will he do that? When he returns. It's going to be a time of transition. I think some people think that, well, when Christ comes, everything is going to be utopia immediately. No, it will not be utopia immediately. That's another subject perhaps I'll talk about at the Feast of Tabernacles this year. Is a time of transition. Once he comes back to this earth, what happens? Zechariah 14, you know, Egypt most likely will not go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. And what happens to Egypt? They're not going to get any rain. It's a time of transition because some of the nations are going to be a little reluctant. They're not going to receive Christ with open hands. Although there's the second exodus, which you read about in Isaiah, the 11th chapter. And also, uh, there might be a particular reference even here in, uh, in Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 31. So Christ will come back. You read about, of course, that new covenant, Jeremiah 31, uh, Hebrews 8, and Hebrews 10. So it will be a time of transition. Christ, as we talked about this in the Council of Elders, is something that has always been taught by the church uh, for decades, back into the 40s and 50s, uh, that uh, Christ will complete the 70th week when he returns for those three and a half years of transition. I should have uh, referred you when I was there to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 7 is, talks about the second exodus because it's going to take time to get all the captives of Israel and Judah back into the Holy Land, into the Promised Land. But Jeremiah 31 says... Jeremiah 31, verse 7 says, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, the one who labors with child together. A great throng shall return there. They shall come with weeping, with supplications. I will lead them. You find another description of the second exodus, of course, in Ezekiel 36. 
where God says, I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. Of flesh. They've had a heart of stone. And they will loathe themselves. And it appears that only a tenth of all the captive Israelites will survive and come back to the Holy Land. So it will be a time when the kingdom is established. But what's going to happen in the near future? When Christ comes back, He'll complete the last half of the 70th week, and He'll establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And the two nations will become one nation under King David. And you can read about that in Ezekiel, the 37th chapter. So we've seen the importance of Jerusalem to Jesus Christ. He was king of Salem. He wept over Jerusalem. He's coming back to Jerusalem to rule the world. But what prophecies can we expect to be fulfilled soon? What's going to happen next? In Jerusalem. One of the factors we look at, and you can see time to time in international news, is a call for Jerusalem to become an international city. May 18th, 2015, Jerusalem Post opinion is a comment on Pope Francis aligning himself against Israel. I'm quoting from the Jerusalem Post. In a treaty that was finalized in Rome last week, this was May 18th, the Catholic Church fired the latest salvo of its 2,000-year-old struggle to disenfranchise the Jewish people. Meeting with Palestinian officials at the Vatican, church officials agreed to formally recognize the state of Palestine as part of a deal concerning Catholic activities in the Palestinian-controlled areas. This outrageous step is a severe blow to Catholic-Jewish relations, and it cannot go unanswered. Israel and the Jewish people should protest this measure in the strongest possible terms and make sure that Pope Francis realizes the damage he has done. Continuing from the Jerusalem Post opinion page. In biblical terms, by recognizing a Palestinian state in Judea and Samaria, the Vatican is effectively seeking to deny the eternal covenant between God and the Jewish people to whom this land was promised long ago. This is not only offensive and disrespectful, but disingenuous too. Indeed, one cannot help but wonder... What Bible is the Vatican reading? End of quote. In 1980, when Israel declared Jerusalem to be Israel's, quote, united and eternal capital, end of quote, the Vatican strongly objected to Jerusalem's declaration of Jerusalem being Israel's capital. In 1984, Pope John Paul II called for Jerusalem to have a, quote, special internationally guaranteed status. So be looking for that perspective in international news concerning Jerusalem. Turn to uh, Daniel, the 12th chapter. What else can you look forward to in prophecy and 
prophetic events occurring in the near future or in the medium term. Daniel, the 12th chapter, and verse 11. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, he tells Daniel, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of days. So there's a common ending. And that ending point is what? The resurrection. When Daniel shall stand at the end of days. When we will all be, God willing, all of us be in the first resurrection at the last trump. So you count back from that particular point in time, and what do you find? You're going to find that the sacrifice is taken away 1,290 days before the resurrection, before the end of days. So if the sacrifices are taken away, they have to start. Um, many of you, I don't know how many, how many of you were in Israel, have been to Israel? See your hands? Okay, good. Looks like about a dozen of you have been there. And some were at the feast, of course, the Living Church of God brethren were there for the Feast of Tabernacles in 2013 and 2014. And they went to the what used to be called the Third Temple Institute, where that particular group is preparing for the animal sacrifices. And when we were there back in 1984, they were still working on it. They had the priestly garments. They have the sacrificial instruments to do uh, the sacrifices. And remember, even this year at Passover time, what happened? They had a demonstration of a Passover lamb sacrifice in Jerusalem. It kind of offended quite a few people. But you need to understand that, yes, that may happen. As Dr. Meredith has explained here, it appears that in Daniel 9.27, that the people of the prince, and the prince who destroys the city, of course, as it talks about here at the end of uh, verse 27, actually looking forward to the beast being thrown into the lake of fire, is poured out on the desolator, as it should read at the end of verse 27, that he, the prince, will confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even under the consummation until it is determined. So it appears that there may be a covenant or a deal made with the beast power with the Israelis to allow them somehow to commit or to, to reinstate animal sacrifices, which were cut off in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. And animal sacrifices have not been reinstituted. But the Israelis, that is the religious group of the Israelis, are really looking forward to that particular time. So what should you look forward to? Look for news that talks about animal sacrifices or a deal, or a policy, a covenant, a 
contract made between the European powers and the Israelis, allowing them for animal sacrifices. So look for that particular event. And of course, when that happens, Jesus tells us that when the sacrifices are stopped, we better pay attention. Matthew 24, verse 15. I hope that you're all very familiar with that because it will involve your future life. Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, we just read about that in Daniel 12, but there are also references in Daniel 8 of the abomination of desolation. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, I have a red letter Bible, and the next parenthesis is in black. Whoever reads, let him understand. In other words, the editors believe this is Matthew's comment, saying, listen, pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. Whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So it's obvious that when the abomination of desolation is set up, that that's the time for the church to flee. And we don't know the details of that. God will reveal that in His time. So that's another major event that you need to look forward to in terms of the future of Jerusalem. And of course, we will be three and a half years, that is, those who are of the woman uh, who flee to the wilderness will be in the wilderness for three and a half years. That's Revelation, the 12th chapter. And at the end of that three and a half years, which consists, of course, of the Great Tribulation, two and a half years, the heavenly signs, and then the day, the year-long day of the Lord. You read about that sequence in Matthew 24. Well, I'll just take a look at it here while my eye falls on it. Um, Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So we have that sequence of events. You have the abomination of desolation set up. The sacrifices are stopped. That's 1,290 days before the resurrection. You have 30 days then before the great tribulation because that's 1,260 days, as it says in Daniel, the 12th chapter, and uh, also indicated in uh, Revelation, the 12th chapter. So right after the tribulation comes the heavenly signs, verse 29, Matthew 24, and you can reference that with uh, Revelation, the 6th chapter, the 6th seal. The cosmic disturbances, or we call them the heavenly signs. I hope you all understand, as we've taught for many decades, that the Great Tribulation is Satan's wrath upon Israel. It's the time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 30, verse 7, and on God's people. Then you have the heavenly signs, which introduce the day of the Lord, which is what? The year of the Lamb's wrath. Revelation, the sixth chapter. It's the day of the Lord. The great tribulation is Satan's wrath. The day of the Lord is God's judgments on the nations. And of course, you read the 
eighth and ninth chapters of Revelation, you have the seven trumpets, uh, and of course the seventh trumpet announces the kingdoms of this world to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. And at that seventh trumpet, we, the first general resurrection takes place. So those who are asleep rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air, and so shall we be with the Lord. We go from that particular point to meet Christ in the air, and we go to the sea of glass for the wedding. Turn to Revelation, the 19th chapter. Revelation 19. Now, of course, women can appreciate that a lot more than we men. But we look forward, we, the church, the woman, are going to be married to the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. So we have to be ready. We are now preparing for that marriage, for that wedding. And we have to be overcomers. And of course, what we see here are those that are with Him, are called, chosen, and faithful. I'm sorry, that's in Revelation 17, 14. But Notice that uh, this is the battle of Armageddon, as it's called, the armies in heaven. Verse 14, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on horses. Armies in heaven. Now, yes, they are uh, angels, as it brings out in Matthew 25. Uh, But who are those that are in fine linen, clean and bright? The woman, verse 8. And to her... It was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So we are on the sea of glass, as it says in Revelation 15, verse 1, verse 2. Then we have the marriage supper between, the marriage, I should say, between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement, when Satan is put away, the seven last plagues are poured out. I might just mention in passing that some other churches of God say that uh, the wedding takes place on Pentecost and that Christ will return on trumpets. That cannot be because when you read the seven last plagues, which let's just turn back there to, might hold your place, what happens in the seven last plagues? Revelation 16, verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. The whole ecosystem of the world is going to be upset, and you cannot survive two and a half months from Pentecost to trumpets while those plagues are being poured out. As Mr. John O'Gwynn writes in the Revelation booklet, that it will take just a very short period of time that Christ is going to have to come back very quickly or everyone on the face of the earth and everything on the face of the earth will die. Notice verse 4. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. 
And you just wonder, how can civilization or human beings last for even nine days between trumpets and atonement? But apparently there will be enough people uh, remain alive. We know that, that a third of the people are going to be killed from the four horsemen. And then later on, uh, the, uh, the fourth is going, are going to be killed uh, during these plagues. So, let's quickly look at Revelation 15 here. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having their seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. So these are the saints of God standing on the sea of glass, being wedded to Christ. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So that would be an awesome and beautiful time. After these things, verse 5, I behold the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And so that's where the uh, seven last plagues uh, begin. <clears throat> so when we come back with Christ, then, where will we be? We will be with Christ as we saw already in Zechariah 8 and verse 3. I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. So what will we be doing? We've already seen we'll be kings and priests, but let's just look back here at Revelation 3. Well, Revelation 2 and verse 3. There are different functions, rewards, positions for those who will be overcomers in the, and make it into the kingdom. Revelation, the second uh, chapter, uh, verse 26 he who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. As I also receive from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's, of course, the church at Thyatira. So they will have a different responsibility and role in governing in the kingdom of God. What about the Laodiceans? The Laodiceans, those who are overcomers. Remember, he says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. This is Revelation 3.15. But you have to be overcomers. There may be some that will go through the great tribulation and will die and will be faithful unto death and will be Laodicean overcomers who will be in the kingdom of God and will have a very high reward or position. What is that high reward or position? Verse 21, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. They will have gone through torture. They will have gone through captivity. They will have gone through tribulation in a very serious way because that's the only way they can make it into the kingdom because they have such flawed character that the only way 
God can create in them that perfect character is through a great tribulation. But what about Philadelphians? What will they be doing? Laodiceans will be on the throne with God. Thyatirans will be ruling over nations. Revelation 3, of course, the Philadelphia church. And verse, verse 11, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Of course, those are Philadelphian overcomers. Jesus himself has an emotional and very deep attachment to Jerusalem. And he says, Philadelphians are going to have the name of the city of my God and the name of the new Jerusalem and my new name. That's, again, verse, verse 12. So we get a little sense of what happens in the future. We said that we will be a pillar in the temple of God. But later on, ultimately, we saw there was a, a temple in heaven. But eventually, there's not going to be a temple. Let's turn to Revelation 21. Revelation 21 and verse 22. Revelation 21, 22. Now, this is a description of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God to planet earth. Revelation 21, verse 22. The Apostle John writes, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. So we will have a very close, intimate relationship with God the Father and with Jesus Christ. They are the temple, and we're the pillars in the temple. How are we going to prepare? I want to give you a couple action points, of course, and we all need to be exhort. Exhorted, exhort one another while it is day, because night comes when no one can work. What must we do? You know what we must do. We must read our Bible every day. Those of you who are familiar with Deuteronomy, the 17th chapter, verse 19, what was the king instructed? We are training as kings and priests. Deuteronomy 17:19. And it shall be with him, that is, the book of the law. And he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the eternal as God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in the kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel." So have you let a day go by without reading your Bible? You are preparing to be a pillar in the temple of God. You're preparing to
to become a king and a priest, you need to read your Bible every day. What else must you do? You need to be aware of the mission of the church, which is to preach the gospel to the world. And I want to encourage all of you to make sure that you are watching Tomorrow's World telecast. Now, how can you do that? Of course, some of you don't have uh, cable. Some of you do have your iPads. And uh, I did not turn mine off, by the way. And uh, I do have on my Android, I have a little icon here. It says, Tomorrow's World. How many of you have a Tomorrow's World app? I see your hands. Oh, good. Well, that's encouraging. That looks like about 52% of us. So, uh, very good. Now, when I touch on this, it says, Current Telecast, Where Did the Apostles Go? I touch that, and it says, Play video streaming, play audio streaming, download video, download audio. So I hit OK, and... The following is a presentation of Tomorrow's World. So I hope that all of you uh, will access uh, Tomorrow's World telecast one way or another. And uh, if you have a CD player at home, um, perhaps we can uh, make sure you get a copy to play Tomorrow's World telecast. Uh, you know, Dr. Meredith's program, God Heals, last Sunday or last weekend was the eighth time that telecast has been played. It had an excellent response to it. And Dr. Meredith and I just anointed uh, some more cloths because I know there will be a lot of requests coming in for anointed cloths, and you want to pray for those. And then, of course, this weekend is where did the apostles go? Next week, five strategies for prayer. Uh, who is the prophesied man of sin? Uh, Middle Eastern prophecy. Doomsday in Armageddon. So you need to read your Bible every day, watch the telecast every week, and what else? Follow instructions. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me, Jesus said. That's John 10, verse 27. I've encouraged you before and encourage you again. Do you respond to the coworker letter? Jesus Christ is sending out these messages. And so, are you taking those messages seriously? Do you read the coworker letter? Do you pray about it? Do you pray for the response to that coworker letter? I know. Again, I've encouraged all of you to put a, the, at least to put a dollar, you know, into the envelope. So, well, it'll cost 40, 48 cents, I guess, for first-class stamp. But I discovered that uh, you actually can give that envelope to uh, Mr. Lyons and Mr. Decimo. Okay. Anyway, give it to someone from headquarters. Uh, but you do it. But you will respond. You know, Jesus saw the woman putting in the two mites. He said she put in more than they all. She was responding to the needs of the church, and I hope that you will be responding to those needs and be praying for those that you are again responding to the instructions. My sheep hear my voice. We also, as being future residents of Jerusalem need to pray for Jerusalem. might just turn there, Psalm 122. We're told to pray about our flight not being the winter, nor on the Sabbath day. 
We're praying for more laborers to go into the harvest, as Jesus said in Matthew 9, verses 37 and 38. And here in Psalm 122 and verse 26. Pray for the pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. But we also pray for the modern people of Israel who nationally call upon the God of Israel to save them. But they're going to have to learn some very serious lessons because the modern nation of Israel has some very terrible national sins, including homosexuality, abortion, and Sabbath-breaking. And so God's going to have to correct the modern nation of Israel as well, but we still pray for Jerusalem. And we also visualize our part in the new Jerusalem. might turn to Revelation 21 tells us in Proverbs 29.18 that where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but happy is he who keeps the law. Or where there is no vision, the people perish. So we need to exercise vision. We'll get more of that vision, of course, during the Feast of Tabernacles. Revelation, the 21st chapter, gives us a vision of the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Now, why was there no more sea? You might hold your place there briefly. Second Peter, the third chapter. Hold your place in Revelation 21. But Second Peter, the third chapter, tells us what's going to happen. At the end of the white throne judgment, what happens? You read the, uh, well, it's right there. The end of chapter 20, verses 14 and 15. The lake of fire for all the incorrigibly wicked. But here in Second Peter, the third chapter, notice that it says, verse 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's our message going out to the world. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. The heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Oh, God is going to purify the earth. At the end of the white throne judgment, when all the incorrigibly wicked are thrown into the lake of fire, there will be no physical human beings alive. They will be destroyed, those who are the incorrigibly wicked, or we will be spirit beings in the royal family of God. Then the earth is purified by fire. He continues then, verse 11, with this exhortation, Second Peter 3, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in a holy conduct in godliness? Yes, the earth's going to be burned up. You don't want to be a part of that. Looking for and hastening 
the coming of the day of God, because of the, which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. God is going to purify the physical elements. Nevertheless, according to His promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now back to Revelation 21, verse 2. So there's no more sea. Revelation 21, verse 1. Because the earth is now purified. God the Father is going to come down with the new Jerusalem. Heaven is coming to earth. Verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. Mr. Peter Nathan gave a Bible study a couple weeks ago on Wednesday showing how much God really wants to tabernacle, wants to be with His people. Jesus Christ wants to be with us. They shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Verse 9, Revelation 21. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And then he describes this beautiful city with all these precious jewels and and stones. And even the walls are clear glass, pure gold. Verse 18 He said, I saw no temple in it because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So here is this beautiful city coming down. It is the Lamb's wife. Who's going to dwell in the new Jerusalem? The Lamb's wife. And who are the Lamb's wife? Those who are in the first resurrection. So we look forward to that time. I might just, we have a little time here. Hold your place here in Revelation 21. Back to Hebrews 11. I know we've covered quite a few different scriptures here, but it all ties in together beautifully. Hebrews, the 11th chapter, and uh, we read verse 13, that we're strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Verse 14, for those who say such things, Hebrews 11:14, declare plainly they seek a homeland, And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call their, be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. 
And I have a marginal reference here, Revelation 21, 21. So Abraham, apparently God revealed to Abraham about the new Jerusalem, that there is a city, a heavenly city prepared for him. And uh, even the commentators know that that's referring to the new Jerusalem. Chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. That's where God dwells, our Father in heaven. The heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So here is that city, the city of God, the new Jerusalem, called the Lamb's Wife in Revelation 21, verse 9. Who is going to be in that? Those who are in the first resurrection will be in that, that particular city. I want to read briefly from the Revelation booklet, and I encourage you to, uh, in conjunction with this sermon, to read Revelation, uh, The Mystery Unveiled. I just want to read from page 44. Uh, Mr. O'Gwin gives this beautiful summary of the New Jerusalem. Quote, Near the end of the book of Revelation, John describes the glory of this great city with its twelve foundations and twelve gates. The streets are of gold, and the gates of each made of a single pearl. There is brilliant color and light pervading everywhere because of the presence of the Father in Christ. Those who are part of Christ's bride will actually dwell in the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. While those who come later, during the millennium, in great right throne judgment, will inhabit the remainder of the new earth. The rest of God's glorified family, the nations of those who are saved, quote-unquote, will have unfettered access to the Father and Christ as the gates of the city will remain open by day and there will be no night there. Verses 23 through 26. They will have complete access to the tree of life that grows in the city and to the river of the water of life. Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. So God gives us that opportunity, but you might just take a look, quick look at that in Revelation 21, uh, verse 23. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. What nations are those? Those are the people who come into God's kingdom during the millennium and the white throne judgment. They will not live in the new Jerusalem. Only those who are the brides, the Lamb's bride. They shall walk in its light. The kings of the earth bring their glory and honor to it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. 
But there shall by no means enter in anything that defiles or causes an abomination or lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, brethren, I encourage you all to read through chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation to see your glorious future in the city of Jerusalem. And read the first three verses of the book of Revelation where he says that he is going to bless those who read and hear and keep the things that are written in the book of Revelation. We have such a high calling. The world has no idea of the high calling that we have to be kings and priests and to be a part of the New Jerusalem. If you are a faithful Philadelphian, you'll have the name of the New Jerusalem, the city of God. So, brethren, pray for the kingdom to come. Let's all be faithful in completing the mission that God has given to each and every one of us. Let's look forward to our glorious future in Jerusalem and prepare with our whole heart mind, and soul. Let's look forward to the new Jerusalem.